we can approach a diverse and inclusive audience with this blanket approach to money. While I think, yes, there is value in explaining to people what is the two plus two equals four of, you know, your direct deposit and, you know, paying into your retirement. And what does it mean that, you know, we're giving you this match on your 401k, et cetera, et cetera. There's not taking into account, well, what are the issues that you're dealing with with money or around money at home? What is the feelings that you have around money that keeps you here? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome to the most hated F word podcast. I am delighted you are here with us. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, and today we have a special episode for you. Before we get into it, I have a favor. If you have been enjoying the podcast, the conversations, and our guest, I would love if you took a few minutes to head over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review. Also, if you haven't had a chance, check out my new money album. Yes, somehow me and my good friend Rootub wrote a full-length music album about my relationship with money. You can find it on Apple Music or Spotify. The album is called Change Making Money. I'd love for you to check it out. So today we're diving into the topic of empowering yourself financially and healing financial trauma to uncover your voice. Joining us is financial coach and expert Rakim Sabri, who will share his journey and insights on how cultural and racial factors impact the wealth gap, and how understanding and addressing financial trauma can lead to financial empowerment. We'll also be discussing how financial literacy programs often omit cultural competence and how we can make changes in these programs so that we can achieve financial empowerment. Tune in as we discuss the importance of taking control of your money story and applying a spiritual, mental, and physical lens to money to improve our relationship with it. Don't miss out on this wonderful episode on Bravely Diving In, empowering yourself financially and healing financial traumas to uncover your voice with our guest, Rakim Sabri. Rakim, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that you said yes to joining me. I had been seeing your name pop up on LinkedIn. I'm trying to be better with the social media world. LinkedIn is the place that I feel like I can feel some comfort. So I'm trying to spend time on there and your name just coming up on people's posts. We were at a couple, or for sure the Financial Therapy Association conference that I saw you were there. Uh, we didn't We didn't chat, but maybe next year or this year, but I'm delighted to have you on the conversation or the show today. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. I thought we might start by rewinding the clock a little bit. 
And jumping back to, if I have this date wrong, I'm sorry, but May 28th, 2021. (laughs) (laughs) I see a smile and I hear a laugh. So maybe I got in around the day. But this was a big day for you. You quit your job and decided to focus on yourself and your mental health, which you ended up sharing on Twitter. And I think over 2.2 million viewers have seen that tweet or more. When you look back at this time, can you discuss the discomforts that maybe you were feeling prior to this decision and even probably afterwards? But how did you, if anything that possible, lean in and kind of sit with those discomforts? And I speak from personal experience. Often when I have discomforts around major decisions, I ignore, flee, or run from them. But there's something unique about these big decisions in our lives that I think we can start to learn more about ourselves. So maybe can you just touch in around how, if anything at all, did you lean in and wrestle with this discomfort that ultimately made you or allowed you to quit that job? Yeah, I think uh, it's important to kind of notate that there was an opposing force of discomfort occurring at the same time, right? And so it was really a matter of making a choice. In my role at the time, I was unhappy. I was feeling other than myself. I didn't feel appreciated. I felt, you know, like I was being shuffled around. My responsibilities were constantly changing. I felt pressured to justify why I was there. And so in a sense, I felt like my job may have been in danger, but I was also high performing on the other end of that spectrum, right? So I just got a raise. I just got a bonus. I just got my performance review and, you know, really good marks. And so some would think that there's security in that, but I didn't. And because I had the brand, the personal brand that I had been building to kind of run towards. So at this point, I had already written two books. I had done a TEDx talk. I was writing for publications and I had just been invited to speak at FinCon. I was like, you know what? Let me carry the momentum of this and see where I go with it. I did not expect in tweeting that I had quit my job that it would garner so much attention. And as a result, I got a lot more media um, exposure. I was approached by Bigger Pockets Money. And so I was able to um, have an interview on their podcast, which is a pretty large podcast. I was approached by a producer from Tamron Hall Show, which is like a nationally syndicated daytime television, to talk about my story. I had written three articles and three pretty large publications about the experience and those were going viral. So there were a lot of people hearing about, you know, this guy quitting his job to preserve his mental health and pursue entrepreneurship. I couldn't have imagined that was going to be the outcome of making that decision. So when I think about the days and and specifically the two days leading up to me making that decision, I was very anxious. I was very nervous. I was wondering, is this the right thing to do? This certainly goes against the grain and what is considered status quo. I've invested 10 years of my life building a professional brand in the banking industry. Is that going to be irreparable? If this doesn't work out, will I be rehirable? There's a lot of the what if situations occurring. And so leaning in really involved taking inventory of what I had access to by way of an emergency fund or assets or access to credit, leaning into my community. So the people that I would go to for advice and feedback and, you know, am I, am I crazy right now? Or does this, <laughs> this sound like it makes sense? And then leaning into my authenticity, leaning into to myself, 
and saying, you know, what what is going to make you happy? If not now, then when? The timing just kind of lined up to be perfect. We're in the middle of this raging pandemic. Everybody's working from home. It's the great resignation. So you're hearing news of people quitting their job left and right. And so I just kind of said, all right, this is this is what I'm going to do. And I pulled the trigger. <laughs> <laughs> the tone and effect, reflection of your voice at that last comment, I can see that there's a perhaps proud that you made that decision. As you were discussing, I want to I want to definitely keep this about about you because you're the guest. But as you're talking, I can't help think of I partnered with someone and we wrote an album about my money story. And when you said I was being other than myself is one of the motive that was your word other than myself, you were getting the promotion, the raises on the paper, you know, all the things that seem that we aspire for, that we dream for, that we're programmed to believe is the key. We wrote this song called An Unsafe Safety Net, which is the program that we subscribe to of get a job, chase promotions, get your re- retirement plan. Although these things can definitely be safety, there's this nuance to it that if we can't, and I like the word you said, if I can't be myself, you're being someone other than myself. Is this actually a safety net? I think it's perhaps one of the reasons why your tweet and your decision went so viral is because we're drawn towards people who have that courage to be themselves in a world that's so difficult to actually sit and have stillness to be ourselves. So thank you so much for sharing that. My last question around this decision though is, so now we're in 2023. When you look back at that individual who made that decision on May 28, what have you learned about yourself, if anything at all, since that decision to be yourself more? I want to say a lot and I want to say nothing at all, but I guess to give you something a little bit more concrete, I learned that whatever decision you make is going to be the right decision, right? And so oftentimes when we look at the difference between two choices, we experience that fear response, right? And 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 really like, how is this going to be received by other people? And so when I think about the people that I was most concerned about, my mom, my dad, you know, other members of my family, my community, my friends, I was just like, like, am I going to be viewed as the crazy guy here? And then what if I get myself into a mess financially that I can't get myself out of? Are they then going to, you know, kind of put my nose in and say, well, you left this good, you know, job or are they going to support me? You know, again, looking back, I realized that whatever choice I would have made would have been the right decision. If I would have decided to stay and tough it out, that would have been the right decision because that was a decision I made in that moment. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, and, you know, the series of events that have occurred since making that decision have been validating that decision for me. So I think, you know, that leads into my second kind of realization is that, you know, faith is so powerful. Taking that leap, taking the step into the unknown is very scary, yes, but I don't think that anything outside of faith in myself, faith in, you know, some higher power, faith in my community would have carried me through that and continues to carry me through that for as long as it's been. So we're coming up now on on two years since I've made that decision, and I'm not going to pretend that it's been an easy journey. There have definitely been high and low points, particularly financially, since making that decision. But, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I probably 
would do it sooner. (laughs) (laughs) I probably would do it sooner, but I would be a lot more strategic in the way that um, that departure looked. As you're explaining that, I I just hear a a lot of acceptance, though, around your decision-making and the, the idea that when we have to make a decision, to use what you're saying, that's the right decision, but I think that comes with a lot of acceptance. And I think that can teach us a lot about our, our financial lives as well. And as you're talking, though, I can't help but think about your book, Financially Irresponsible. It seemed like you're talking about what are people going to think? Am I being financially irresponsible? Did that have any influence on your title of that book at all? The answer to your question is actually the reverse. Financially Irresponsible was published in uh, December of oh, 2019. Oh, right. It was before. Yeah, yeah. But some of the motivation in titling the book that way was to kind of highlight decisions, financial decisions that some would consider, some traditionalists, if you will, would consider financially irresponsible. And to really kind of instill this idea of personal finance being personal, right? And so in the book, I'm a huge advocate for people understanding their finances and taking control of their finances to the degree that, you know, maybe they do work with money managers, CFPs, et cetera, but they're not deferring all of the knowledge and all of the goings-ons, right, of their finances to some professional, that they get to kind of look behind the hood and understand what's happening. And so the book is kind of like a crash course introduction to financial literacy for people who maybe have never had that exposure. But it's also another lens on how to manage or interact with your money through a spiritual and mental lens, but also through like practical lenses that say, okay, this is what budgeting means. This is what saving and building credit looks like. This is what planning for retirement looks like. And maybe these are some of the obstacles that I might encounter over the period of time trying to accomplish these things. But this is how Rakim has navigated around these obstacles. You mentioned about having faith. And in the opening of the book, the opening chapter in part one, You talk a lot about how this notion that money is not the root of all evil, and you give a lot of different passages. And I thought you did a really good job of addressing this notion that often people are led to believe that money is the root of all evil. Can you touch on why you decided to start the book, like a financial literacy book with not technically financial literacy, when we go by the definition, financial literacy could be two plus two is four. It's funny that you're asking me this question now at this stage of my development of, you know, and particularly in financial psychology space, because I've seen some of the work the Klontzes have done around money scripts. And one of the money scripts kind of speaks to like this same concept of, well, you believe that people that have money are bad, right? Or that they have had to do some terrible thing in order to get that money. And so a way, in a way, rather, I was kind of touching on these money scripts without having the vocabulary to really describe it in the way that the Klontzes do. But then, you know, meeting Brad Klontz and, and becoming acquainted with his work and, and in the field of financial psychology, it's all been very validating to the things that I've been saying since, you know, pre-2019, but certainly published in 2019. As far as answering your question with the way that I structured the book, I grew up in a very kind of spiritually centered family. And my grandfather in particular would have us look at things through the lens of what he called the three degrees. So that was spiritual lens, a mental lens, and a physical lens. 
And so when we look at and we talk about money, oftentimes we just talk about it through this like physical lens, right? Like how do we use it? How do we exchange it? What can we buy with it? But we don't look at the impact of our emotions and our feelings on money, right? From a mental lens, what are our ideas or our beliefs about money? And we certainly don't look at it from a spiritual lens that says, well, what does money represent to us in this like non-physical world? And how does that manifest in our attitudes, our moods, things that we're passionate about, the things that we pursue without passion? You know, this whole idea of the rat race, right? Purpose. And so I wanted to hit on money from all three of those lenses to give a more kind of holistic approach to improving your relationship with money, particularly for individuals who have a very negative relationship with money and don't have the vocabulary to really identify or articulate that. So I think that the work had to start in kind of the realm of the spirit, if you will, to say, hey, get right with your spirituality or your purpose and recognizing that money in and of itself is not an evil thing, that people who have money are not necessarily evil people and that you are deserving of money. You are deserving of wealth and abundance. And then the reframing of that mindset then allows for you to kind of think about, well, what does it mean then if I feel like I deserve money? What does it mean then for me to go out and start figuring out how to acquire money and how to better manage money, how to hold on to money? And then getting into the physical that talks about like you said, the two plus two equals four of how do I create a budget? How do I build credit? How do I pay off debt, et cetera? Thank you for that answer. And yeah, it, it's so interesting that you say kind of your exposure to the clients and their work was after writing this this book really speaks to you being able to like, I guess, hone into your intuition and articulate what you're feeling before you the not, I guess the 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 research knowledge to understand what you were doing and and you did a I felt a great job really addressing that psychological barrier that we often have around money that financial literacy in and itself often can't resolve. I want to bridge into financial literacy. You 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 talk a lot about financial literacy in and around your conversations with financial empowerment and financial trauma. Over the past 10 to 15 years, We've seen a lot of uptake or attempts to deliver financial literacy in the workforce or organizations aspiring to provide financial literacy. At times, we can observe this as maybe a performance or a buzzword financial literacy. I've had experiences where companies have said that we have to do this as opposed to we want to do this, which can be problematic in and itself. On the contrary, of course, we can look and find research that shows the benefits to financial literacy. Now, I think what I see from your work, and I and I do believe, is it can work, needs to be highlighted and underlined. Based on your experiences, your studies, your work, what have you observed that is often left out of the conversation when we talk about financial literacy? There's a lot, but just on the top of my head, I think, you know, the first thing that I'm thinking of is a cultural competence, money doesn't look the same for everybody. Everybody's experiences with money is not the same or were not the same. We were talking about buzz phrases and initiatives within corporate environments in particular. We can approach a diverse and inclusive audience, right? Another buzz phrase and initiative in corporate 
with this blanket approach to money. While I think, yes, there is value in explaining to people what is the two plus two equals four of, you know, your direct deposit and, you know, paying into your retirement. And what does it mean that, you know, we're giving you this match on your 401k, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's not taking into account, well, what are the issues that you're dealing with with money or around money at home? What is the feelings that you have around money that keeps you here? And in a way, I think that that's kind of intentional or counterproductive to the corporate machine, right? Because you need workers. And so you kind of have to give them enough to keep them coming back, but not so much that they can be independent. And so, you know, there's an issue of ethics there. You know, certainly everybody is not built or designed to be an entrepreneur. But there, there are environments, there are wages, there are industries that really take advantage of the fact that, so what, you're sick, so what, you you know have somebody at home that needs to be taken care of, so what, that you have to drive X, Y, Z in the snow, in the rain, you got to come into work. These are the number of days that you have budget, that you have to budget to do your own thing. But if you exceed those days, you'll be penalized. And so there's this this culture in corporate America that contributed to my departure as well, where people were working through illness, people were working through stress, people were working through the death of loved ones and having to kind of like suck it up and grieve or rather suck it up through the grievance process. And so I think cultural competence is a huge one. Of course, the therapy side of money is another huge one. So understanding it's not one size fits all. Relatability is another huge one. I think that kind of maybe falls under the cultural competence category in that if I am a 21-year-old Black man and a 65-year-old white man is standing in front of me talking to me about investments and retirement and trusts and life insurance and things that I've never heard of before, and why these things are so important, there can be a disconnect there, right? Because I can't relate to your experience. And I might think that you were able to accomplish all of those things, but I can't accomplish all of those things. And so it, it becomes kind of performative behavior or, or, or show. Some observations I made over my, my years is that sometimes in those situations, it is definitely performative, but then it can also go towards judgmental from that that individual delivering this best financial literacy program because they created it. So they think that and they're like, why aren't, these, why aren't these people, you know, why aren't you just doing it? And I go back to my hunch or a, a portion of why your tweet was so popular is because it seems to me you're just diving into yourself and being yourself, which almost gives people, I think, permission to be themselves. In a way, I think yes. your your actions gave them like, uh, kind of a torch to light the way on how they can be. And I say that because I, I watched a video of yours and I, I scrolled through the comments and people were just telling their own stories. I quit my job when I did this. I quit my job with two kids and went to school and became an RN. I think what I hear from a lot of your work is this humility to have an understanding that we all have our own stories. We have our own cultural experiences, our own lived experience, which make us all so unique. And if we try to blanket approach financial literacy, it's going to fail. I really get that sense from you and I, I really appreciate it. So thanks for the work on that. You, you, you brought up financial therapy 
Something else I see online, you talk a lot about financial therapy, financial trauma. Before I dive into a specific question, in your own words, what is, let's start with financial trauma and financial therapy. So I describe financial trauma as any instance observed or experienced that has a negative impact on the way that you view, interact with, or believe about money. There are a lot of different definitions of financial trauma in circulation. I don't know that there is a standard definition yet, but I think that the way that I describe it kind of encompasses the spectrum of how trauma can manifest, whether that be something kind of small or in passing, right, through an observation, or something rather large and impactful, like a repossession or an eviction or being laid off. And so giving that that spectrum of how trauma can manifest allows for more people to identify with financial trauma and understand the role of financial trauma in their decision-making or to an earlier point you made in decision-making, right? Like some people will just put their head in the sand or they'll wait till the last minute or they just won't do anything at all because they don't know what the right decision is or they do know what the right decision is, but they don't know what the outcome of that decision is going to be in comparison to maybe another decision. And when you add on the, the layer of lived experiences, right? So you know, I grew up experiencing aspects of poverty. Sometimes what you have right now is not going to refill itself, right? So and when I was working, I knew that every two weeks I was going to get paid and I knew exactly the amount that I was going to get paid. And so whether I adhered to a budget or I didn't adhere to a budget, if I used up my first paycheck frivolously, I knew that within two weeks, I just have to make it for that two-week period to get another check. In my current life as an entrepreneur, that's not really the case, right? Like there's peaks and valleys of what income looks like. And, you know, there might be a couple of dollars that come in here or there might be a couple thousand dollars that come in there. And so I have to navigate those inconsistencies in income or the fluctuations in what that income looks like with some pretty standard, pretty set reoccurring expenses. And so I can relate back to my experiences with poverty from a certain perspective and saying that, okay, like, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Do I splurge, right? Do I really enjoy myself because I don't know the next time I'm going to have the opportunity to enjoy myself? Or do I hunker down and try to hold on to this until I get another income payment? You know, that looks like overspending for a lot of people. And that looks like financial hoarding for a lot of people. And and certainly those decisions can be, and, and I would go as far as to say often are influences by the traumas that we've experienced earlier in life or that we're experiencing right now. On the financial therapy side of things, I don't know that I've have that I have a working definition of financial therapy because in the space I try to be as much of a student as I possibly can. I do know that there is a lot of controversy around who can call themselves a financial therapist. Just kind of looking at the act of performing therapy versus like this clinical approach to therapy is an interesting kind of like divot in in the space, right? Because you have the mental health practitioners who want to own this term therapy and and therefore want to apply clinical approaches and only clinical approaches to what therapy can look like. And then you have people who are experience-based practitioners who have gone through this, who are able to tell their story of how they were able to navigate through this 
but maybe don't have the vocabulary that comes with clinical study to say, oh, this is this is the box that I'm checking off here and being able to help you move through whatever your issue is. But the end result can be similar, if not the same, or the, the end result can be greater on the end of the experience-based practitioner because of the intimacy, because of the ability to see the other person and what they're going through and empathize with what they're going through. And so in a way that work is providing therapy, certainly therapeutic relief within the realm of finance. So I have been kind of on this journey to understand financial psychology as a whole. Like what are the motivations behind why we do what we do? But more specifically, to provide financial therapy in a mixed approach that kind of incorporates my lived experiences, but is supported by research and clinical processes to guide not only my interaction with my would-be clients, but also to provide accountability in the community of financial therapists, financial psychologists, financial planners to say, Yes, I have my lived experience, but I also have the credential to show you that I know what I'm talking about and the backing of, you know, whatever the affiliated organization is. So currently I'm pursuing the uh, AFC through the AFCPE. They have a really robust program around, you know, the financial counseling that includes, you know, the counseling side of things and the financial education side of things brushing up on some of kind of the old things that I've known for a little while with the financial education side of things, but really getting a lot of insight into how a properly structured counseling session should look and really kind of notating the differences and what my approach would be as a financial coach working with a client on a particular issue and what my approach would be as a financial counselor working with a client on maybe that same issue or a different issue. Rakim, you can hear the work you've done on yourself as you're responding to these questions. And what I mean by that is becoming more attuned with your own feelings, your own beliefs about money, about change, about decision-making. And I think that is the part that many people aspire to focus on, is being able to do their own work so that we can show up as much as possible detach from ourselves with a client. And I really appreciate about the Financial Therapy Association, what I've at least observed is that, yes, there is this distinction between practitioners and the clinical therapist. But I, I feel that there's a, an integration that is happening there with a focus. And I, I do know the the conference for 2023 is, I can't remember the, the tagline, but it's basically about doing your own work. And I think that comes across in what you're saying. And I'm sure your clients, the people you coach can feel that, that you see them, you get them. We don't need to talk about two plus two equals four right now. We will, but right now it's just, I see you. And I think that's what makes or can bridge this, this gap that we often have where understanding financial literacy is scary. It's intimidating because as you said earlier, people don't, don't get us. If we don't, we don't get, if we don't get ourselves, we certainly can't get other people. So, and I want to go back to our earlier point too, just kind of like acknowledge what you're saying and that I think really the, the tug of war that's happening covers two of those three degrees that I mentioned, right? You have the people who are experience-based, right? And so I would kind of categorize that under the physical. 
And then you have the people who are the, the therapists or the academics is, is what I've described them as. And they can be kind of categorized under the mental space. My feedback to you on your feedback to me is what I think you're recognizing in the interactions that I have with people is the spiritual side and that we can we can categorize the unseen, intangible aspect of maybe financial empathy or in the language that we've been using so far, me being able to see you as bridging the gap between the A plus B equals C and on this textbook, this page, this paragraph, it sounds like you're experiencing this issue and tie it up into a nice bow to say, okay, this is the complete picture of not only how I can connect to you and how I can provide healing for you, but how I can give you also the foundation of what you should be doing in the future, the A plus B equals C, and what we can call this so that we can recognize that in text or so that we as practitioners can be thought leaders to amplify the importance of the work that's being done. And so I agree with you. Shout out to the Financial Therapy Association. I just got acquainted with the organization last year because I applied to be a speaker. And then going to the conference, I was completely blown away by the, the sense of community and the fact that everybody was talking about the things that I love talking about. Mm-hmm. And I had an interesting conference here last year because I went to FinCon in September, which was all digital creators, not academic at all, right? You had mm-hmm. teenagers on TikTok <laughs> and everything in between to go to this academic conference with the Financial Therapy Association to then go to this academic conference with the AFCPE and see the different audiences, but also make note of the the people that you saw at all three. And there weren't too many, but there were definitely people or connections that made an appearance at FIDCON, made an appearance at FTA, and then made an appearance at AFCPE. And we're seeing a lot of those themes kind of circulate around the importance of acknowledging money and emotions, acknowledging processes for managing your anxiety or your doubt or your guilt or your shame or your fear as it relates to money, financial therapy as a whole. And so I'm super grateful to be in this space and to be connected with so many like-minded individuals. And I know that, or rather I'm recognizing that we all have a part to play in this. And collectively, I think our duty is to amplify this entire conversation that you and I are having, that financial literacy by itself is not enough. Thank you for that response. You know, this this conversation is making me feel like my background, I'm a financial planner. I was a financial planner um, for the majority of my career before I had the words of understanding which financial empathy was. (laughs) I chuckle because I'm just thinking, how did I become a financial planner without having financial empathy? But that's, they didn't teach me it. I'll, I'll blame it on that. But no, that, it's my own doing to figure that out. But um, I participated in Dr. Brad Klontz's diploma and we had to write a story on our money story. And it was suggested to interview your, your father and grandfather. It was through that lens of understanding myself more that made me a more empathetic and understanding and just a better, better person and financial educator in the sense that, wow, I started to uncover all these 
beliefs that I held around money that aren't true. They were just what I believed based on my lived experiences. Just share this because my great grandparents came over from the Ukraine and the province I live in in Canada, they promised a whole bunch of farming land. And I learned this through this project is when they came here, there was no farm, farmable land, it was trees. So they had to clear it off. Lots of distrust in the government and which made them, you talked about hoarding, be known as hoarding money because they didn't want to give it to the government or to the banks or the institutions because there was this distrust. And in my province, there's a saying that Ukrainians are cheap. And like, that's kind of something that I, I, I lived into. And then, um, without going into my whole background, but I was a shy kid and I thought money was powerful because hockey players had a lot of money and they seemed happy. And I was a Ukrainian, so I was cheap. And I grew this like badge of honor that I was cheap and I was frugal. And that's what ultimately led me to financial planning. And I know that that unchecked realization influenced how I was communicating with clients, which, you know, you're never proud of. But the point about this all is the importance of diving into our own stories to recognize that having this blanket statement or this rigid point of view can be quite damaging. I appreciate this conversation in, in how much we're talking about doing the work in ourselves so that we can be there for someone else. So I just went on a whole tangent by myself. I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely vocal. Thank you for sharing it. When I look at this, this idea of trauma, you talked about mental health. Claudia Black, she's written some really good books on trauma. And she has said, she's a researcher, author, and practitioner. She's one of those like, can do it all. But uh, she always talks about how 90% of all mental health cases are as a result of unseen trauma. And she really emphasizes there's this little T and big T trauma because often the word trauma is like, whoa, no, not me. So this idea of little T trauma is just these micro nuances that might not impact other people, but other people, it, it lands differently. So my question is around with your community. On your website, you talk a lot about working with people like yourself, the Black community. When you look at your community and financial trauma, what traumas are are, are your community dealing with? And how can people in, in your community that you deal with start to, I guess, begin to heal from these traumas in ways that maybe other communities aren't aware of or just don't understand? Because as I said earlier, and we've talked about, we all experience this thing money so completely different. And I think it's important that we share so that we can seek to understand. Yeah, this is a, a powerful question. <laughs> So I want to give you an appropriate response, but I want to preface my response by saying that our experience collectively as a community has a lot of similarities, but certainly a lot of differences. And so I know that there are Black Americans who have never experienced poverty. And I know that there are Black Americans who probably never will experience wealth. And so the drastic differences in what those lived experiences are certainly going to influence how maybe people on the opposite end of those pools will receive this answer. But I think one thing that a lot of Black Americans have in common in this country is that many of our ancestors were the products of chattel slavery. And so when we look at the financial institution as a whole, and we look at how America has built up significant wealth over the length of her lifetime, right? We have to acknowledge the role of unpaid labor and what that looks like. I had made a statement, I don't remember when or where, 
But as you mentioned, I talk about this often, that spoke to how there is this uptick in Black Americans investing in the stock market today because it's hip, it's cool, it's trendy, like we're learning about how to get into it when many of our ancestors were the original stocks that were exchanged, right? They were representations of, you know, this this asset that was bought and sold at the very same location, right? On Wall Street. There's trauma there, right? There's trauma in our relationship with the the currency that we use to live and experience and do all the things that we do with money because at one time and, I, and this is not maybe something that people in this age are conscious of, but certainly, you know, your, your DNA remembers. And so a lot of the work that I've done in financial trauma is based off of the work that this researcher, also practitioner as well, Dr. Joy DeGroyd has done. And her thesis work is called post-traumatic slave syndrome. And so she talks about how slavery and the impact of slavery, and then the impact of the events following slavery through Jim Crow, up through civil rights, even up through present day, continue to impact us and trigger that trauma that is passed down through our DNA because, you know, the DNA remembers. Your DNA has a memory of sorts that acknowledges that trauma. And there are studies that point to this from a neurology perspective as well. And so when I think about how we perceive and show up and interact with our world around us and some of the um, the stereotypes that are perpetuated in the media and around the world on what maybe laziness looks like for Black American or what extravagance and flamboyance looks like when it comes to Black Americans wearing their wealth or choosing not to invest, or being hypersexualized, or being violent. We're often looking at the symptoms and not the cause of how this trauma is manifesting. And so Dr. DeGroy's work is looking at this trauma from a very broad kind of universal perspective. And I take a slither of that trauma and apply it to money. And so I was actually reading her book while I was writing Financially Irresponsible. And so I make reference to some of the quotes from her book in Financially Irresponsible to kind of drive home some of those points. You know, you mentioned with the Canadian-Ukrainian community that there was distrust with the government because of what was promised and not delivered. And that's something that I believe many Black Americans can identify with the U.S. government because not only were there things promised and not delivered, but there were things taken away. There were things destroyed completely. And there was, you know, our entire livelihood, right? Uprooted, ripped out of where we come from and, and dropped here to, to um, without, our, you know, our identity, our language, our religion, our culture, our names, having to kind of rebuild in this state of lostness. You know, there's... A lot of polarity when it comes to, well, what is a solve, right? Like, how do we address this issue? How do we make it right? One of the big conversations that's happening within the Black community right now as it relates to the government is reparations, this concept of reparations, and that many other disenfranchised groups have been paid financially, given compensation in some way, shape, or form, but we have not. 
some of the arguments with people, financial educators in particular within the Black community is, whoa, 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 we're having these conversations and we're crying out for reparations, but what does that look like? If you and your condition dealing with the trauma that you have dealt with were to receive this one fall of money and didn't have the structure or the knowledge to know what to do with it. It's a hot topic, certainly, because it's not, I'm not making that statement, myself and others are not making that statement as if to say that there should be a criteria for us to receive that. But we are saying that with concern, and I think, you know, as we've talked about earlier, empathy to say, well, if we got that money, are we going to turn around and give it right back by, you know, buying the name brands or the flashy cars or what have you? That's my very long-winded answer and in, in, in telling you that I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the fix, right? I haven't yeah. lived long enough and I haven't done enough research to be able to say with confidence that I can provide a solution outside of doing what it is that I do every day. But certainly it is a motivating force in the passion and enthusiasm that I have around doing this work and certainly underscoring and, 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 and kind of zooming in, as you mentioned, specifically on my community to say, you know, there's resources out there for everybody. And I think everybody should have resources, but I think that we should have very specific resources because our challenges are different. Our history in this country is different. And so our trauma is going to look different. And my educational kind of progression of late is focusing on trauma as a whole from a scientific perspective, is focusing on financial psychology and financial therapy as a whole so that I can help anybody who might be dealing with financial trauma. But I'm also very conscious of the lived experiences of Black Americans particularly those Black Americans who are experiencing poverty or who have experienced poverty, but also Black Americans who haven't and still have to deal with like the structural inequality, the working twice as hard to get just as far, the code switching, the being other than ourselves that I talked about in corporate places in order to experience a quality of life that may come a little bit easier to our non-Black peers. Well, thank you for for answering that. And as you said, it could be a, a difficult one, a complex one to answer. And I think you, you said so well, it's on these difficult issues. Is we don't always have the answer, but I think you, you provide some insight that people listening and, and actually listening to, to listen, you know, it helps us understand even ourselves better to hear different perspectives. And I, I, I definitely saw your presence being vocal around working with your community on your website, online. And I thought it was important to, to get some insights just from your lived experiences so that we can all reflect on our own experiences. And I think that helps us all be able to disarm our own biases so that we can actually show up to, I think a theme of this is to see someone. And I'm sure, again, your clients definitely can feel that sense of, Rakim sees me. And, you know, that's a, that's a good feeling. You talked about the DNA, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, The Body Keeps a Score by Bessel van der Kork. I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Yeah. The, her research was reminding me of his, his work as well, is that it's, it's in us. As much as we, if we try to ignore it, the body keeps a score. Or as to, your, to the research you point out, it, that it's in our DNA. 
you also talk about your relationship with your money. And I think the underpinning of what we've been talking about this entire conversation forms the relationship with our money. When we look at the psychological aspects or even the therapy aspects, they all work towards this ever complex, disorganized relationship with money that we have. When you step out of the busyness of your daily living and take some time to sit back and observe, maybe reflect or journal, what would your ideal relationship look and feel like? With money? That's correct. I forgot that word. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you. (laughs) I don't think that it would be very different than what it is right now. And I know that that's a big statement to make, especially as I kind of talk about the peaks and the valleys with income, right? And I certainly experienced financial stress and financial anxiety and, you know, even aspects of financial trauma. But the trade-off for me when I left corporate America was more time freedom. And that time freedom translates to other freedoms as well. But I was not making as much money as I was making. And, you know, certainly I have high hopes as an entrepreneur that I will create the right system, get the right clients, offer the right services that my income will meet and beat what it was that I was making in a corporate environment. But I'm still very early in this process of evolving my message and evolving how I want to position my service and even articulating the service that I offer to other organizations or individuals. So right now I have a model that looks like B2B and B2C. You know, social media right now is the tool that I use to advertise that as a service while also trying to be entertaining, thought provoking and, you know, everything that comes with that. That all being said, I am not in a relationship with money where I'm trading my time for it necessarily and that I'm sitting down at a desk for 40 hours a week or 80 hours a week or however long. For me, it's about how can I maximize the impact in the shortest amount of time possible? Does that look like creating powerful content that maybe interests people who might be my client? Does that look like freelance writing? Does that look like podcasting? Does that look like just kind of going on a podcast tour, right? And and letting other people interview me. I'm still figuring that out. But I think if I had to do it all over again, like I said earlier, I would have probably done it sooner. I would want to remove the financial stress and anxiety. You know, there's this idea that's been circulating since the great resignation that people don't want to work. I think for me internally, there is an aspect of the fact that I don't want to work in the traditional sense of what work looks like. And the idea that when you do what you love, it's never really work, right? Going back, going back and forth, because I can sit and I can talk about this kind of stuff all day and I can counsel all day and I can coach all day. And I mean, obviously I would need to take time to rest and recuperate because I'm definitely an introvert. But this is what gives me, like, it fills me up. It gives me purpose. It makes me feel like, you know, this is what I'm here for. I try to show that, I try to demonstrate that in every way that I show up, whether I'm speaking on a stage, whether I'm speaking in a podcast, whether I'm writing, it it, it doesn't matter. I want the passion to come through that, like, I'm here to do this, not because of the money, but because of the work. Sometimes... We find, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, but some passion that is like Tony Robbins. Like it's just, it, it, you can't, like it's so visible. Uh, what, 
what I really appreciate about you is you you said authentic a few times is I feel so comfortable talking to you. I feel like there's this contentment and you just kind of talked about your contentment with your relationship with money right now or peace. And it just, it, I don't know. I thank you for this. It made me just relaxed and being able to just talk to you and not try to like match your over exuberance energy. And I think sometimes that could be performance. So I don't want to make myself sound like that's wrong, but I just appreciate the way you show up, the way you answer questions and your thoughtful answers. Cause yeah, it makes for a engaging, authentic conversation. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, one last thing that I can't help but think about is, I hope I get the the career ambitions right. But in your TED talk, you talked about I think you wanted to be an architect, a psychologist, and a psychiatrist. And as I just listened to your story, a snippet, only sixty minutes, I feel like you became a version of an architect as you're creating these books, these platforms to educate people, to allow people to really step into themselves by watching your story. You're working in financial psychology, so you kind of got the psychologist going. And I think the psychiatrist was because you want to make more money. And that will come, but you're also helping people make more money and get more peace with their own money. So you're fulfilling all your career ambitions from a 5, 10, and 15-year-old. Uh, you know, I, I, I love that you point that out, and I appreciate that you give me that validation I was laughing with my my father. So my my father's also studied psychology, and I was saying, you know, this is like a full circle moment for me. I'm, you know, I, I deviated from this path of psychology and started working in a bank and started making money. And I was just like, all right, I'm just going to focus on making money. And now I build a brand around personal finance, and I'm seeing the personal finance is kind of like going back into psychology. And, and, you know, I get to deliver the best of both worlds, right? I spent 10 years in, in the banking industry. I started studying psychology when I was in school. And now I'm pursuing like financial counseling and, and, you know, looking at the work of financial psychologists so that I don't necessarily have to do the research, but I can certainly cite their research in helping people in the way that I envisioned it in the first place. And so towards the end of last year, I just kind of had like a thought that maybe not the goal for 2023, but the goal for 2024 looks like opening up a physical location where people can come in and get financial counseling in the same way that they would go into a therapist's office and get, you know, therapy or psychotherapy. And I was just like, that's such a cool idea that just randomly popped into my head shortly after I uh, I started studying for the AFC. So, you know, I, I, I can't help but thank you for acknowledging that because I think I agree with you. I think definitely doing doing all that work, honoring those versions of myself. Well, thank you so much for joining. For the people listening who want to find out about your work right now, your book, and who want to follow you to see if and that store opens up in 2024, where would you point them towards? Yeah, so I'm active on all social media at Rakim Sabri. So it's just my full name. I have been weaning myself off of social media lately. So I've been giving myself kind of a daily allowance. But that's not to say that I'm not active, but definitely check my DM. My website is rockhemsabree.com. Where I'm most active is on my podcast slash newsletter. I send out the newsletter every Friday. So it's a Substack newsletter. It's rockhemsabree.substack.com. The title of both the newsletter and the podcast is also coming financial trauma. I talk about this, this fun stuff mm -hmm. all the time. So definitely subscribe to the newsletter and you will be in the loop. And again, all my social medias are at Rock M. Sabri. 
there's no hyphens, periods, or underscores. I see a lot of like clone accounts popping up. So just be mindful of following the right Rakim Sabri. We'll include all that in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Before you head out today, if you can head over to Apple Podcasts, take a couple minutes and leave a review. That'd be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for tuning in and have yourself a wonderful week. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.